Hello and welcome to the Clubhouse, Golf Monthly's weekly look at the various different events around the world in golf. Today, I'm joined by Golf Monthly's editor-at-large and legendary golf writer Bill Elliott to look back on the career of Sevi Ballesteros 10 years after the great man's death. Hi guys, Justin Rose here and welcome to the Golf Monthly Clubhouse podcast. The Clubhouse is brought to you by Titleist, the number one ball in golf. For more, visit titleist.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Clubhouse. I'm Elliot Heath and we've got a slightly different episode for you this week. I'm very, very delighted to be joined by Bill Elliott, legendary golf writer. Uh, and hopefully we can chat a bit about Seve, unbelievably 10 years on since the great man's death. So uh, yeah, a pleasure to be joined by you, Bill. <laughs> How are you? Well, as, as you may have heard, because I tell everyone, in the hope of getting sympathy. I'm four weeks past having an operation to for a total knee replacement in my right leg. So uh, um, I've been, uh, it's, 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 uh, I'd like to say it's great fun, uh, but at the moment it's not, but hopefully it will all be worth it in the end. Yeah. Have you been able to watch some golf though? Um, yeah, bits and pieces, bits and pieces. Although, you know, I mean, there's not that much that interests me at the moment. <laughs> yeah. I, I really enjoyed your columns through the masters. Um, oh, thank you. Really nice Justin Rose one. Unfortunately, he didn't get the win. <laughs> no, 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 he, he didn't. He didn't. But, you know, but he's won, he's, he's won so much, Justin, in so many other ways. You know, I mean, A, obviously, he's won the US Open. He's won lots of other things. And all the rest of that. But you know what he's won most? He's run the race to be a decent human being, which he was when I first met him when he was a 17-year-old. And, he's, and he remains now that he's a 40-year-old or whatever he is at the moment. So, you know, good family, lots of money. Nice guy, nice wife, nice kids, you know, so who cares about the Masters, really? <laughs> yeah. Before we chat Sebi, Bill, do you want to just give the uh, listeners a little introduction to yourself? Uh, I'm sure many listening know who you are, but for those who don't? Yeah, certainly, yeah. Well, my name's Bill Elliott. Um, not not the same Billy Elliott who you may have seen the film of the, the, the young minor son who became a ballet dancer. Uh, that's not That's not me. I'm often confused for him when people see me on the dance floor. No, I've, I've been a journalist for a thousand years. I worked in Fleet Street for, uh, as it were, national newspapers for 40 years, starting with the Daily Express in 1969, at which point the Express sold over 4 million copies a day. In fact, you can, you can plot the Daily Express's decline almost exactly from when I joined them. <laughs> and I've worked for various other newspapers and what have you. I ended up the last 17 years on uh, as golf correspondent of the observer and um and then latterly wrote a lot of stuff for the guardian as well before before that finished but i covered lots of other sports well i started as a football reporter but also i've been to olympic games i've been to big boxing matches uh 14 i think wimbledon's um you name it i've been lucky enough to be there and in a front row seat so i've, I've had a very fortunate very privileged uh, and very very enjoyable career and I now find myself 75 and three quarter percent retired, but still enjoying writing um, the stuff I write for Golf Monthly, which uh, I hope one or two people enjoy. <laughs> yeah, we do. Um, and one person that's given you a lot of stories down the years is Sevi Ballesteros, who uh, died on the 7th of May 2011. Yeah. Uh, can you believe it's been 10 years? No, well, not, yes, in one sense, yes, obviously I can believe it, but it's still startling, isn't it? I mean, he had ceased to be, you know, a competitive professional golfer before that, A, through injury, and then B, through 
this awful uh, tumors in his in his head that he then suffered and that eventually killed him um yeah it, it's 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 very sad because not only the way Sebi's career finished prematurely which actually i always i always kind of knew it would because he had back problems right basically from the start serious back problems uh but that we we lost him as a man as a force as an opinion um his opinion wasn't always valid any more than any of our opinions are always valid he always believed it was valid um that was that was part of his strength and part of his charm i suppose he very rarely admitted he was wrong uh but uh, we've we've missed his input and you know it's interesting i i i talked to ken schofield who for those who don't know was for many many years the chief executive of the european tour and helped lift the tour into a, a different level and he was helped in doing that uh, by sebi and, and and not only sebi by by sebi's gang if i can call them that of sebi nick faldo bernard langer ian woosnam sandy lyle and then following on from that was Maria Olathabel and, and 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 probably Colin Montgomery and so on, um, who all became absolute standout star golfers, and not just star golfers uh, in 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 the sense of how the game they were able to play, but also genuine stars. The Sebi Faldo Woosnam Lyle uh, um, Langer uh, cohort were, were sort of golf's equivalent to the Beatles, really, because there was something for everybody there. But Sebi was the leader, and and the path that he that he um, that he knocks through the jungle, as it were, of professional golf at that time, particularly in America. It's not that I don't think they would have won majors themselves, but they probably wouldn't have done uh, if Sebi hadn't shown them that uh, that you could go to America, for example, and you could win the Masters. Um, that gave them the belief, because you know every now and then, obviously, they were beating Sebi on the golf course on the European tour. But Ken said, Ken Schofield, to go back to Ken, Ken, you know, Ken said to me when we were chatting about this for the piece that I then wrote for the magazine in the current edition of the magazine. Um, you know, Ken said that they greatly miss him, that they, they, they obviously had problems at times with him and he had problems with them, but nothing that was ever too serious. He never, he was very loyal to the European tour. But interestingly, Ken said that he would have had an opinion on everything because that was Sebi. And, and and it was always worth listening to and he would have had an opinion on what was happening in professional golf at the moment on potentially the 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 world tour as opposed to the pga tour which is trying to be the world tour um and and also ken most interestingly to me said that uh, he himself believed that sevi would have had a second go as Ryder cup skipper and certainly ken himself would have backed out if sevi wanted to do it which sevi would have done so Long answer to your question. <laughs> yeah, God, that would be fantastic. Um, so you started, what, in 69, did you? Seve turned pro in 74. Uh, yeah. start, started winning, I think, sort of 75, 76. Yeah. Um, do you remember a, a young Seve out on the European tour and, you, you know, you start covering him? Uh, well, not really, because I, I didn't really start covering, well, I didn't start covering the European tour until 1979. So I, I was, essentially, I was, I was bound up in covering football. I was based in Manchester, so it was, you know, Man United, Man City, Liverpool, Everton, Bolton, Mondras, uh, Stoke City, who were in the old first division in those days, and uh, and my own club and team, the beloved uh, Preston North End. Um, so, I, I, and I wasn't, I, I'd only just started playing golf, 
um, and and not obsessively. It was just something that few, some guys in the office did, and they invited me along. And so I'd only just started playing golf, and I didn't have uh, other than the, the the opens and the things, you know, the Masters, the majors. Didn't really have a huge interest in the game, other than other than playing it. So I, I wasn't aware really of Seve Ballesteros until 1976, when at the Open Championship that year at uh, Royal Birkdale, uh, the 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 Daily Express decided that I would be part of the Express's uh, Open team, as it were. I think there were about five of us, and 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 I was I was at least number five in the rankings. I was the I was the uh, go and get some coffee, Bill, will you or whatever. I was that I was that guy, but on the on the um, I think it was the first night I was over in in Southport on the Monday night. Um, I went to a restaurant and I'd, I'd been invited to join a couple of guys uh, who did cover the European tour. who went round freelance journalists, and one of them, <clears throat> a, a really good guy and good journalist called Gordon Richardson, uh, uh, was among them. And we were in this, I can't remember the name of the restaurant, but a restaurant in Southport. And as we were sitting there, three or four of us, uh, in what these uh, three or four or five Spaniards, Spanish golfers, um, to be honest, I didn't know any of them, but it was Manuel Pinero, Jose Maria Canizares, and uh, uh, a couple of others, and this young guy, young, good-looking guy. And uh, they, they all knew uh, uh, Gordon. So there was hello, hello from Gordon. And then Gordon, Gordon introduced me uh, around, said you should meet, uh, and da 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 da. And it came, and he said, This young guy said, Keep your eye on him because he's, he's going to be great. Sebi didn't speak much English at all in those days, but anyway, we shook hands and said hello. And I thought, that, you know, I just thought one, you know, nice, decent looking young guy he was. Um, and um, I, I said something to him about football just to try and make a contact. And he managed to get over that he supported Barcelona. And um, he then made it, so who did I support? And I said, Preston North End, he had no idea what I was talking about. And, and, that, and that was the end of that. And I thought, well, that, there you go. I'll never see him again. Um, and we sat down. And then, of course, you know, six days later, whatever it is, uh, on the Sunday, he, uh, he played that magical chip at the 18th between the bunkers to finish uh, tied with Jack Nichols. I think it was the second to Johnny Miller. And uh, I thought, mm, Gordon Richardson may have a point about this guy. And from that point, I kept an eye on him. Yeah, and then three years later, he won the uh, the Open itself. He did, yeah, yeah. At Lytham, just down the, the up the coast, as it were, at uh, at Lytham, Lytham St. Anne's, Royal Lytham. Um, and that was wonderful. It was wonderful to see him do it. That was the famous car park thing where he hit his ball. It wasn't a it was it wasn't a car park. If you, if if it hadn't been the Open, it was just. To the right of to the right of the fairway on that hole, but it was where they were parking cars that day because it was it was pretty you know fifty yards wide. So they didn't think anybody was going to go in. Um, but of course, Sebi Sebi did, and then got a drop from under a car or whatever. Um, but it it wasn't ridiculous. It, and, and, but he knocked his ball in the green, and, and of course knocked the putt for for a birdie. And I watched that, and then I thought he's going to win this. So I I. I went out and stood uh, at the 18th green, uh, behind the 18th green, where I, <clears throat> because I had the right armband, got privileged access. Uh, found myself standing next to a guy called Willie Whitelaw that you've probably never heard of, but uh, Willie Whitelaw was a very senior conservative politician. Um, I think he was Home Secretary at the time. So he and I stood there, chatting about this young guy coming down. 
plane and Sebi approached the green. Well, whatever, I can't remember now, but it did two shots at least ahead of uh, who was it? And, and uh, um, from the, the, the applause, 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 and Sebi's sort of in a, in a modest way. And as he stepped onto the green, the, the applause was dying down, and a broad Lancashire voice shouted out, Ole! <laughs> it's a broad Lancashire accent. And even and Sebi started laughing, as, as did all of we. And then he, he, he held the pot that won the Open, and his, uh, at least three of his brothers, uh, the several Ballesteers brothers, um, at least three of his brothers came hurtling onto the green to, you know, grab hold of him. The, the uh, um, media secretary of the RNA tried to stop them, but it was a waste of time. Sevy started crying, and, and uh, it was just wonderful, wonderful uh, scenes. And it was the start of just the start of a glorious, glorious adventure for Sevy. Yes, for European golf. Yes, uh, for European golf fans. Yes. And, you know, especially if you were, as I then was becoming, or shortly after, beca totally became um, a, a, a golf writer. Um, my timing accidentally was brilliant. I, I grabbed hold of his coattails and off we went. It was, uh, it was wonderful. Yeah, so back then you would have had uh, much better access to the world's best players than we do now. Yeah. Um, were you straight back to his house for like an after party after that or did you get a, a really nice solo feature interview with him? What was the sort of access like? Oh, well, no, no, I didn't get uh, any invite back to any, whatever house they, they'd rented for that week, the several Ballesteros brothers. Um, and it was a difficult interview because he, he you know, his, his, his English at that point had improved from 1976, but he still wasn't fantastic. But no, I, I, I was, you know, I was, I, I was just in the, um, in the main interview room with, a, you know, a hundred or so other journalists talking to him. And, uh, but, you know, you really, you at that point, you really didn't need. It, it was. It was just. It was the way he looked, the way he played, the the way he strode, the way he conveyed emotion to the crowd. Uh, whether whether it was pleasure or irritation at himself for playing a, for him a poor shot, um, elation, disappointment. He he embraced and involved the crowd in that. And so the crowd that was following him and the crowd had grown all week, you know, to become the biggest crowd was going with Seve Ballesteros, this, this new, I mean, he was a, he was a rock star and, and they became one, the crowd and Seve became one and the crowd and Seve was always one after that, certainly wherever he played in Europe and to a large extent, to, to a surprising extent in, in, a, in the United States as well. Players, the players, the other players, many of the other players in America resented him coming because he, he was too good, uh, you know, but the better ones didn't. They recognized the quality of him. And the, a lot of the American crowd, I have to say, especially American women, um, were very much on his on his side from there. So, no, there was no there was no uh, there was no great uh, uh, Elliot exclusive following. Yeah. There, there were quite a few exclusives over the years that followed as we grew to know each other and um, and became friends. Yeah, another great reason why he probably had such a good relationship with the fans as well is because he was hitting his golf ball into the fans. Yes, quite often, no, absolutely. Hitting those miracle escape shots from the rough or, or wherever yeah. he was hitting his ball. Yeah, you, you know, in many ways he played, well, not the same golf as you because you're, you're a very good player. 
but the same golf as me and many, many, many other golfers where we find ourselves in the trees or in the bunkers or in behind something on a regular, too regular a basis. Uh, and, 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 and Sebi did that too, but he then played shots that, you know, Jack Nicholas said were, were from the golfing gods that he'd never, he'd never seen before. Uh, never seen somebody with the audacity to try it, never mind somebody with the skill to try it. Um, so there was a common bond. You know, you watch some players and they're, they're, they're brilliant down the middle, middle of the fairway, onto the green, they hold the putt or they take two putts, whatever it is, they move on. And they win lots of things or they finish second, third, fourth or whatever. But are they interesting to watch? Yeah, a bit, but not that much. So it, it 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 it's it he had that he had that rapport, and and I mean the famous scene that's been shown a million times on TV when he was playing this I think it was a world match play when it was whatever it was at the uh, um, the se the seventeenth when when he hit his drive down right and then he it, it was the crowd had to move back because again he was off the fairway in, in the crowd they had to move back and he had to play it and and and. Uh, the crowd were only a few feet from him, and he, he was just about to take his club back when somebody moved or said something in the crowd. And he looked at, and instead of getting angry, he looked at them as well. He said, "I, um, I know you're nervous, but so am I." So you know, <laughs> yeah, nice and line. See, it was them. It wasn't just him. It was him and the crowd. The crowd and him. They they were one body. They were one body. It also helped, and it's it's something I've touched on a lot over the last probably 20, 25 years, whatever it is. If, if you look back at the, he wasn't wearing a hat. He wasn't wearing a cap. And none of the others were either. I mean, unless it was actually pouring down or whatever. You put something. They didn't wear caps. They didn't wear hats. So you could see, you could see their faces. You could see their eyes. You could, you could see the expressions. You could see the emotion. And that was very important, particularly with Sevi, because you only had to look at Sevi's eyes, Sevi's face, to know exactly what he was feeling at any moment, whether it was a good time to go up to him and say, do you fancy having a drink and having a chat? Or whether he said, "I'll leave it alone for the moment." You didn't need to ask. You knew, you knew from the from his face, um, it was writ large what he was feeling at that moment. Whether he was in a good mood, a bad mood, an in between mood, or whatever. So, so were you out at Augusta in nineteen eighty for for his? I was, yeah, yeah, that was, yeah. That was my first. That was my first mass. You see, again, the, the, the timing, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I mean, none of it's mine. Yeah, That's my your first, first masters. masters. That was my first masters. Yeah, nineteen eighty. Nineteen eighty. I should have gone in 1979, but the editor, the sports editor, the Daily Express, Nick, he gave me, he, he, I had the, the US Open and, 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 and the Open instead, but he said he'd always wanted to go to the Masters, so he was going to go that first that, that year. So, um, and in those days, we only got one, one pass or something. I can't remember what it was, but anyway, I didn't go. So um, 1980, 1980 is my first one, and that was... Uh, you know, well, he did what he did. He was the, he was he was the reigning Open champion, and 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 then he went and won. Uh, I mean, I can't remember how many shots, but easily won that won that Masters, and um, and shortly afterwards, um, and stopped me when I bore you with the stories. I've told you so many times, but the message by his then manager, a guy called Ed Barney, who was Californian. Ed came in the the old media center at uh, at the Masters, which was a tin hut, or as the Americans would say, aluminum. Uh, which was too hot during the day and too cold early in the morning. And Ed came over and approached, I think it was six of us, six British golf writers, because I've got a photograph somewhere. And he said, uh, we're having a little party to celebrate tonight. I'd like you guys to come over, you know, because Seve by then, 
he kind of adopted it wasn't a cynical move but he didn't get the coverage from spanish press because this at that point the spanish generally weren't interested in golf it was a game played by posh people you know um so that there wasn't a lot of coverage in in spain for him but he got coverage via the british journalists and it was the british journalists who were traveling with the european tour and the freelancers in amongst the gordon richardsons of this world the mitchell Platzes of this world uh who just to name two mickey Britton, others who worked for extel um they they traveled regularly to european to all over europe and their copy went everywhere in the world you know everywhere so they were the, the people nowadays with the internet and so on would you know younger people would goggle at this if they weren't there the message wouldn't have got out to australia to south africa to the united states to wherever they sent it and Seve knew that and it wasn't a cynical move but he appreciated and he gave he gave us he worked on giving us quotes not making them up not being silly but he, he cooperated with us he once said some years later he said when he looked at some of us he said you know we are a family we're a family sometimes we fall out but we never fall out forever and we have to work together and be together and help each other together and that was it that was his uh, that was his attitude so anyway ed barner invited if it was half a dozen of us round there to this house where i went he said he wasn't there he was doing uh media other duties at was this sorry, pre-tournament or post no this is when he won after he won yes he's won this has been invited to his to his party oh wow to celebrate so we so we went to this house six of six of his and there were already his brothers were there a couple of other uh, um a doctor i've forgotten his name now he's a very good friend of mine of his spanish doctor uh, and, and 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 some other people so that there there were about a dozen people there when we arrived but no sevi so anyway sevi then arrived and he arrived he, he had his by then he had changed and what have you he had his green jacket on he had a white shirt so he'd done something formal i don't know what his white lovely white shirt on uh and an augusta tie augusta national tie his hair was gleaming and he just without turning this into homoerotica i mean he was a very good looking young guy and he just looked a million dollars and he looked at two million dollars that night because he was, he was so happy he was he was full of joy and adrenaline and everything else and then uh, he came in so he came over to me and he said you know and i was saying well done well done well done and yeah yeah, yeah. and I, I, I knew him better by then we, we still weren't close friends or anything but i knew him better and i said by the way i said you look you, you look fantastic i said if 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 you were a labrador uh dog your nose would be very wet you know you'd be you're really healthy and he looked at me and he couldn't work it out but he knew what i meant and uh, he said you think you think i'm healthy you think i'm healthy huh i said yeah well, you know he said come with me and we went in the kitchen and um it was a big it was a big house thing we went to the big kitchen and there was a connecting door through from the kitchen in, into a garage big garage and they'd taken the door off and there was a trapeze hanging up and he said see this he said i, I gotta hang i gotta hang upside down on this every morning for 20 minutes and it's not easy because of my back i have to stretch my back otherwise i can't you know i struggle to play golf he said you try because i was the youngest of the six that were there and uh, i was relatively fit and healthy <laughs> he said you have a go so uh so we managed to get me up and hanging upside down i mean i managed about three minutes and i said christ's sake you know and I, and, 
and got off. And uh, he looked at me and I looked at him. We didn't say anything. I, I parked in the map said, bloody hell, that's hard. But I, I looked at him, just him and me, in that kitchen. And I said, that's a problem. That's a problem, said he. Good luck. I knew then, or suspected then, or feared then, that this guy was going to play golf forever. Yeah. Wow. So, um, were the Americans giving him a chance, or were the Europeans giving him a chance? Because a European had never won the Masters before. <laughs> Surely, was it just, oh, he's, he's good over on that side of the pond, that he's not going to win our majors over in the States? Well, certainly, the, the, a lot of the Americans didn't, you know, American players didn't want him to win because I say they, they were envious of, uh, already won in America by then. Uh, not a major, but he already won. And, um, and he was the Iranian Open champion. So nobody doubted this guy could play golf. He didn't play the golf that Jack Nicholas played, which was conservative, if impressive, and powerful golf. Seve played buccaneering golf. Give it a whack, find it, give it a whack again. If it goes behind a tree, I believe I can get it round the tree. Um, so, yeah, yes, of course, of course. Um, he, was, he was a contender. He was recognized as a contender at that Masters because of the fact he was a Rainy Newton champion. He, he could not be ignored, but it was still a big ask. It was still a huge ask. But the golf he played, the golf he played that week was astonishing. And when he was a few holes from home, as it were, on the Sunday, Jack Nicholas came in for a chat with us, and and um, the chat was mostly about Seve because clearly he was going to win it. I can't remember how many shots ahead he was, but he was, a, you know, a significant number. It was going to be, have to be total disaster. So you know, he was he was stitched on with a few holes to go. And uh, somebody said to him, what do you think? He, he, he said, and, and Jack was extremely complimentary about him, extremely complimentary about him. And um, at that point, Jack had won five Masters. And, um, and somebody asked him, he, surprised. he said, no, no, I'm not surprised. He said, because this, this course, more than anything else, calls for imagination at times. And, and he has the, the biggest imagination in the world, basically, when it comes to playing golf and then the ability to carry it out. Um, it's the shots you save that win your Masters rather than the ones you don't. And he then said he will win more Masters than I've won. Wow. Not for the first time, Jack was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> he, should, he won two, of course, but he, he should have won three, but for what happened in 1986, when, ironically, Jack won. Yeah. <laughs> it was, um, uh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so he, he was a contender in everything. Every time he teed it up, wherever he teed it up, in whatever competition, anywhere in the world, at that point, Sebriano by Steers was recognized as a serious contender. Yeah, and then obviously he went on to win again at Augusta in 83, then won the Open in 84 and 88. I guess you knew him a little bit better as the yes. years went on and, and went to some, some pretty cool after parties. Yeah, yeah, we had we had we had some good times. He he didn't he didn't do enormous celebrations. I could say he didn't drink much. You know, he would he would maybe have a he liked a glass of Bianca and maybe an occasional beer, but he wasn't a big party guy. He wasn't like a and I, I don't mean this in a bad way. He wasn't like a Darren Clark who you knew was going to go all night. <laughs> he involved this. He he involved this uh, when it, not just me. He involved some others as well. Uh, People that he recognised as having been on, at least on the same road, uh, during this journey through the 80s, 
uh, people who had written about him. Uh, and, 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 you know, for the most part, it's not that we were never critical of, I was critical of him. Took, he took a lot of flack for when he said he, he deserved to be paid appearance money and all that before the Ryder Cup that he didn't play in 1981. Um, you know, so it wasn't all sweetness and light. And uh, But the great thing about Sebi, is, I think, is a great thing about a lot of people that I tend to get on with or people that I can argue with, fall out with, and then five minutes later uh, have a bit of a hug in the days when you could hug and go and have a drink. And Sebi, Sebi was like that. So it was fine. Yeah. Um, can you tell the story of when you, uh, do you remember when you upset him and uh, he came over and apologized? Oh, crikey. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was really, I mean, we were friends by then, but that really was, was when we became pretty close friends. And it was a bit like the old Western thing, of, you know, going outside the saloon bar and having a fight in the dust and <laughs> then <laughs> putting your arms around each other and becoming, becoming the best of friends. Or at least very good, you know, good proper friends. So, yeah, that was in the mid '80s at the Irish Carol's Irish Open, as it was then at Port Marnock. I'm pretty sure it was at Port Marnock um, in Ireland. Port Marnock is a wonderful course. Anybody listening to this hadn't played Port Marnock, put it on your bucket list. And it was uh, the preview day. Sevy was in for interview. He loved playing in the Irish Open. I mean, I think he won it twice. Um, Maybe more, I don't know, but he, he loved Ireland. He loved the Irish. I mean, they do say, uh, I'm Irish myself, Northern Irish in my case. Uh, they do say that uh, the Irish and the Spanish are, are, this, are the same race, with the, the only difference being that there's no word in the Irish language that quite captures the urgency of the Spanish manana. So, Sebi yeah. really loved uh, being in Ireland, and he loved playing in the Irish Open, and he made a big fuss of the Irish crowds. Just loved it. Just loved it. Um, so he was in. He was in during the preview day, and 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 uh, he suddenly went off on a rant about Dean Beeman. And Dean Beeman was at that point ran the PGA Tour. Dean had been a, um, on the, a player on the PGA Tour at one point. Um, a decent, obviously a very decent player. But then he went into administration and so on and became the boss of the PGA Tour. And Dean Beeman was playing in the Irish Open. And Sebi was really angry about this because he said, this is taking a place. It, it'd been about, it, it obviously has to be a play. And Carol's had invited him in as one of their guests, which is, you know, big sponsors of big tournaments can do. So Dean Beeman was playing. Sebi was said, he said he's taking money away from the, the professionals. Somebody who's playing needs the money um, should be playing in that place. So he ranted on about this. And I knew that this was just the latest episode, isn't it? Because there was a big battle between him and Beeman on how many times he said he was able to go over to America to play in the PGA Tour, because he never deserted, if I use the word deserted, he never deserted the European Tour for the PGA Tour, but he wanted to play in America, and he wanted to play certain events. And then Dean Beeman wouldn't allow him to play in that if he didn't play in some more, which meant he couldn't play in events on the European Tour. So it was a big, it was a, there was an ongoing disagreement between these two men. And uh, that's culminating in Sebi doing this rant with this Irish Open. So he then left. Just thought, well, that's a nice little preview piece for, you know, for everybody. And he then left. And I left with him and walked beside him. And, and, uh, we had a he had a security guard with him just to keep people away. And uh, he was still angry, you know, because he got very angry. 
and um, he said, yeah, what do you want? And, and I said, I just wanted to talk a bit more about Dean Beam. And he stopped and his face, he, he screwed up, you know, with anger. He said, why are you asking me about Dean Beam? Uh, why do, why do, I, I go to sleep and I dream of Dean, Be Dean Beeman. I wake up and the first face I see in my head is Dean Beeman. I, this man I cannot get rid of. Why do you fucking ask me about him? And at that point, he, he, he curled up his right you know, fist and pulled it back. And I thought, oh, cracky, I think he's going to hit me. And uh, the security guard obviously thought so too because he stepped away to give him a better yeah. swing. And uh, he looked at me, and I'm thinking, he's going to hit me, but what a bloody story this is going to be. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> things you think. You know, I wasn't looking forward to it, but I thought, this may get the front page leave. Yeah. <laughs> so he's banged up in jail for the night. Um, and uh, it's, it's, anyway, he obviously had a second thought and thought better of it, and put his, then just strode off. Pushed me aside, almost, you know, and strode away. That was it. And the security guard just looked at me and followed him. So that was it. I thought, well, we had a burgeoning relationship, you know, in terms of friendship outside of just being a journalist and a professional sportsman, um, which I was, you know, very happy about. But I thought that's the end of that. That's the end of that. To hell with him anyway, you know. And the next day he shot whatever, 68 or something. You know, if not in the lead, he was in a couple of shots in the lead. He came in for interview. And I thought, well, I better listen to him. So I sat at the back and didn't say a word, didn't ask anything. And he finished his interview. And I got up to go out. And all the other journalists were getting up. And, and I heard this voice saying, Bill, Bill, Bill. So turned around, he was Sevig coming towards me. The other journalist sort of stepped aside. He came up to me. And I thought, oh, here we go again. You know, so he said, I said, yeah, what do you want? And he said, well, I, he said, I want to apologize for yesterday. I'm very sorry. I should never speak to you like that. I'm very, very sorry. And he clearly was. And I, um, and suddenly I felt sorry for him. So I said, oh, don't worry. My wife speaks to me like that all the time. And he said, came in very close. And he said, oh, this is all right for your wife, but not for me. Never for me. Please forgive me. And we embraced. And that was the beginning of a genuine, proper friendship between us which lasted until sadly his death wow lovely so uh, that's his his soft side what about his humorous side any uh, yeah any jokes or, or funny stories uh yeah he was very well the, the funny story is not really <laughs> we're down at saint pierre for whatever event was being in chepstow which which um european tour event was being staged there at the time I forget what it's called and um we were all staying in the hotel there at Saint Pierre, which was a Marriott in that piece, probably. Still. I, I don't know if it still is, but it was a Marriott Saint Pierre. Um, and so, did, you know, some of us journalists were staying there, a few of us anyway. And um, the players, the, most of the players, the ones that could afford it, were staying there. So, and and Sebi had Carmen Botan with him, who by then he was engaged to. Um, and so he and Carmen were sitting in the restaurant, which was full that night, having supper and I was at another table having supper um, and I went to the loo or whatever and I'm coming back and going past the table and Carmen looked up and something I knew Carmen so I stopped and said hello Carmen how are you nice to see you hi sorry and the da 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 you know um, 
And I said, oh, Sebi, I've got a Spanish joke for you, which had just turned out of that day or the day before. I thought I must tell Sebi that. So I said, did you hear about the Madrid fireman who had twin sons? And he called the first one Jose and the second one Jose B. <laughs> and it's not the greatest job, but it's quite funny. And Carmen started laughing because she was, she spoke English impeccably, absolutely impeccably. Sebi's English was very good, but he didn't get this joke. And he looked at me and, and he, he said, uh, what do you mean, Jose, 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 huh? <laughs> so I said, told me again. And now my colleagues at the other table are now watching this. They're not hearing what's being said. They can see Sebi looking puzzled and speaking to me and me, say, me speaking to him. And then they're looking puzzled and me speaking to him. But so I told this joke to him about six times and he never got it. And then Carmen told him in Spanish, he still didn't get it. So I, I said, oh, well, you know, there you go. So um, if you think that's funny, it was funny at the time. <laughs> it's still a funny joke. <laughs> no, we had we had we had lots of, um, and I mean, uh, you know, you don't want me to tell the hitting the shot story, do you? Or do you? Uh, yeah, if, if listeners weren't uh, listening to our first podcast, which I'd recommend them listening to from 2019, uh, Bill Elliott, My Life in Golf, uh, you would have heard this one before, but yeah, uh, go for it. All right, okay. Well, this is uh, um, again in the it was either the late 80s or the early 90s, and we were at Concierge in Switzerland, um, which is a, a, a golf resort and walking the Alps resort in the summer and a, and, a, 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 and a ski resort in the winter. In fact, it's where I learned to ski. Um, and uh, it's, it's very, very posh, you know, like Gina Lola Bridget at a flat there. And, uh, um, various F1 drivers and so on and so forth. So, and my friend, Mitchell Platts, who at that point was writing for the Times before he became the media director for the European tour, Mitch had just got a Porsche. And uh, he'd said to me, listen, do you fancy we'll do the German Open and um, the Kronzschersier, the European Masters at Kronzschersier? Uh, we'll, we'll give this Porsche a run and it'll be a nice couple of weeks. And I thought that's a good idea. So we did that. So we ended up as a consequence of that. We were we were in Germany first and then we went to Switzerland and we ended up there on Monday. Uh, we wouldn't normally be there on a Monday. I wouldn't. I wouldn't get there on a Wednesday. We were there on a Monday. So on the uh, on on the Tuesday, on the, on the Wednesday of, of, of at Kronzschuss year of year, they had the, the biggest, harshest pro-am you've ever seen in your life. It's full of Italian film stars and F1 drivers and goodness knows what. It was a big, big social deal for them. And uh, John Paramore was the tournament director. Um, at, at, at that point, he then became the chief referee for the European Tour and just retired last year. And John uh, came into the press tent on the Tuesday afternoon, by which time there was just myself, Mitchell, and one other freelance journalist had got there, a guy called Norman DeBell, who some people will have heard of. He did a lot of work for BBC Radio. And John came in and said, hi, we all knew, we were all friends. And John said, look, um, I've got to make check and make sure the course is absolutely spot on for this program tomorrow. Um, and the best way to do that is to play it. Do you fancy joining me? Well, a nanosecond later, we'd all agreed. And so... Uh, we I can't remember where we got the clubs from because we hadn't taken clubs, but we John sorted the clubs out. And uh, off the four of us went, and it told the players, this was lunchtime, it told the players they had to be off the course by one o'clock 
because during the afternoon, the grounds people were going to do the final delicate touches to the course for the following day's program. So we teed off in the first hole, and the, all the most of the fairways are, are fir tree lined, so you can't see the other fairway that runs it. The ninth that comes back alongside the first, and I hit at uh, that time a trademark high hook over the trees and onto the ninth fairway somewhere. I couldn't see where, and off we went. The others were wherever they were. I went through the trees, and at the in the almost <coughs> in the middle of the fairway of the ninth fairway is an umbrella pine. That which clearly, obviously, it means the branches come down to within a few feet of the ground, like an umbrella. And of course, inevitably, my ball was underneath it. So I went in and And there were some players making their way up the ninth, finishing their round, getting off the course as ordered. I didn't pay any attention. I just vaguely saw these figures in the distance. And I was looking at it and thinking, what the hell do I do here? For some reason, I had a five iron in my hand. I have no idea why. And um, I'm looking at this thinking, well, I'll see if I can chip it between those trees. That must be what I was thinking. And get it back maybe onto the other fairway. If there was some kind of gap, I couldn't see one. I was going to try. And suddenly I heard again, I heard the voice behind me, Bill, Bill. And Sevy ducked under, under the branches. And he said, uh, he looked at me, he said, give me, give me. And he took my five iron off me. <laughs> and he held it halfway down the shaft. And then he bent his knees so that, you know, he was crouched like half the size he would normally be. And he looked and looked and looked. And then he took a swing because it was constricted under the tree and he hit the ball. And I swear to God, it was about 170, 180 yards if you paced it out from the from the first green. But you couldn't see it. And these these pines were like 50 feet high. And I was I'd stood outside while he hit this outside the pines while he hit the, the branches while he hit this shot. And the ball took off and took off vertically as though he'd hit a, a wedge and went up over the trees almost in a straight line from where, and as it went over the trees, it turned 90 degrees left, honest to God, I swear, and went down towards the green and finished either just on the green or an inch off. And from the other side, um, John Paramore, who was a scratch, if not better, at golfer, he'd been Surrey County champion. So I heard his voice bellowing as the old that's the one of the greatest shots I've ever seen. You know, he didn't see it start, he saw it finish. And meanwhile, Sebi just looked at me, winked, handed the club back in my hand, ducked under the branches, and ran away. <laughs> and I, I came through the trees and they all went, How the hell? I said, I've no idea. I said, I just gave a five on a whack. And it came off. And then John said, That's absolutely fantastic. Anyway, we I didn't touch. We we played on and finished our match for you know, usual few drinks in the clubhouse bet. And as if we had those drinks or whatever, I, I can't remember. I don't think I won them, but anyway, I might have done. I can't remember. And um, as we sat there, the four of us, I said, by the way, I've got something to tell you. I said, you know that shot in the first, the greatest shot you may have seen, John? I said, yeah. He said, that's the greatest shot I never hit because seven hit before me. Brilliant. Isn't that wonderful? And, 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 and the, thing, the thing it tells you, the thing it tells you is that you know, bless him, if Nick Faldo had come past, and I've, you know, in many ways got not a great deal against Nick, and I certainly respect him as a golfer. Nick probably wouldn't, almost certainly wouldn't have had the wit or the sense of humour to have done that, but Seve did. That was typical. That was Seve being impish and cheeky and uh, interesting. Interesting. So there you are. Greatest shot I never hit, and better than anyone you'll never hit. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, we, have, we haven't spoken about the Ryder Cup yet, so... Um... 
yeah, did, did you go to the Ryder Cups? Did you um, yeah, experience yeah, the, the yeah, heavy magic? Yeah, I did all the Ryder Cups. My first Ryder Cup was 1977. Then I went to the mall until a few years ago. Yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah. well, Sebi, of course, the, the, the Sebi played in 1979 um, over in the Green Bar following, you know, the Jack Nicholas thing, getting Europeans playing. And the, the Europeans the Europeans lost routinely at uh, White, Wild and Wonder, White Sulphur Springs in Wild and Wonderful, West Virginia, when uh, um, uh, Ken Brown and Mark James were very naughty boys. And, Almost got sent home. We certainly find lots of money. Um, and Sevi, Sevi had to be restrained. Apparently, the story. So I'm told, and I've been told by excellent sources. Sevi was so angry with them for their behaviour that Brian Barnes, the great Brian Barnes, again who sadly died this year, Brian Barnes had to physically hold Sevi back from smashing their hotel room door down to get at them. Wow. Yeah. So and then and then he didn't play in '81 because uh, it, there was the appearance money uh, fracas, and uh, Bernhard Langer voted with the chairman of the, at that time the selection the way they had it. He voted not to pick him. Uh, it's under pressure from the European tour. They wanted to kind of teach him a lesson. They lost again. Uh, then that was at Walton Heath where they they played arguably but not much the greatest. American Ryder Cup team in history. If you look at the people who were in it, they had more majors than the British Army has. So, uh, and they, they were they were basically tranced. So then um, the European Tour by them was becoming a much more authoritative voice within the Ryder Cup administration, which hitherto had been really within the gift of the PGA, the Professional Golf Association, the club. So they said, look, we need to do something radical here. And they went to Tony Jacklin and asked Tony if he would skip with them. And Tony said yes on several conditions. One of those conditions was Seve Ballesteers played. No matter where he was in rankings or anything else, Seve Ballesteers played in the Ryder Cup. And no one was going to argue about it. And they agreed. And Seve played. And that was at over... Uh, in America, at, in Florida, and we narrowly lost. We narrowly lost. Where Seve played another one of his greatest shots ever, which was a three-wood out of a bunker that sadly wasn't captured on camera. But Fuzzy Zeller, who was the player he was playing in that Sunday single, said he had never seen a shot like it. Because he was, whatever, 200-and-something yards from the green. But the ball, you, most of us would have had to have taken it most a nine iron to get it out from because the bunker was deep in front of him. And, and Seve not only got it up and got it out, he got it 200 and odd yards onto the green. Zeller was just amazed, just absolutely flabbergasted as how this guy did that. And it was at the end of that Ryder Cup that when there, there was most of the players were sitting slumped in their dressing room, locker room, whatever. Uh, you know, knowing they'd come close. And Sebi went round them all, gave a rousing speech and said to them, no, 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 no. Today we win. Today we win. Because today we showed we can win. We can beat them. We will beat them next time. And 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 next next time was the um, was the Belfry and 1985 and uh, the best Ryder Cup I've ever been at. And when they won. 
And, uh, you know, there were lots of leaders that day. Sebi was certainly one of them, <laughs> that week, I should say. And um, he, was, uh, he was in tears. He was in tears at the end. Many were all in tears because they had Concord do a low flight over and dip its wings while the military band was playing Land of Hope and Glory. So <laughs> if you didn't have tears in your eyes, then you never would. <laughs> Not that Sebi knew what the hell Land of Hope and Glory was, but uh, he, was, he was just crying with joy. It was just emotion. And, and and he wasn't alone. Sam Tarns was was uh, cried for us all. <laughs> wow. So uh, yeah, what do you remember about that week then? Just the momentum, the tide, the feeling that this is this is going to work. That that on the first day, the Sunday Lyle refusing to give Craig Stadler, I mean, maximum a two foot putt on the last that would have half half the match. Their match in it. I can't remember his forces or four ball, but anyway. And 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 uh, Sandy, whoever Sandy's partner was, again I can't remember who that was at this time. But he obviously wanted to say, "Give it to him, it's two two feet." For Sandy said, "No." Sandy said, "No, no, 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 no." There's a nasty little turn on that. Stubby had anyway. Sandy wouldn't give it to him. And Stadler. Sort of looked, you know, disgusted. Walked up to the ball and missed, and the whole thing turned. The whole thing turned on that. So you could say. Sandy Lyle won that Ryder Cup more than anybody else. <laughs> yeah, he could say. But it was it was good for and, and I was staying at the Belfry. I mean that night. I mean, the party went on and on uh, with the players and and a few of us journalists and myself with a friend of mine, Frank Clough, who was um, had been chief sports writer, football writer for the Sun newspaper, and was now taking a rest from that and doing golf. Um, and we went in the snooker room, played some snooker, and, and uh, which was great because one frame would take us at least four hours. And be <laughs> so we we were halfway through this four-hour frame, and suddenly the door smashed open in the snooker room. But that those days, anyway, the Belfry was next door to the swimming pool, and uh, the door swung open, banged open, and Sam Torrance, who I think may have had a couple of drinks, Sam Sam Torrance came in, and uh, and grabbed. Frank Clough, because he was Frank was unfortunately for Frank, Frank was the nearest one to him. I was on the other side of the table. And said, You're coming in. And Sam was in his underpants and wet. <laughs> which I hadn't seen too many times before. And so anyway, he, he he threw Frank over his shoulders and stomped off through to the swimming pool where they all were by now, in their underwear, with their wives. And they were all in the pool, bottles of champagne everywhere. And then went Frank. And the only thing I can remember as I ran in the other direction was Frank shouting, for God's sake, please let me take my wallet out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those were happy days. Yeah. And then obviously Europe went on to have amazing success in the Ryder Cup, um, yeah, yeah. in part thanks to Sevi. Yeah, he was he was he was the leader, and of course the relationship that he formed with the same Maria Ola Pabel is without doubt the most significant and greatest, certainly from the European point of view, European partnership there have been, and probably and I can't imagine it'll ever be surpassed as a partnership. They they were extraordinary together. A, they loved each other, um, and I mean that in a, you know in a in a proper way, and and uh, um, they respected each other, they loved each other. Uh, uh, Ollie looked up to Sebi because Sebi was some years older than Ollie, 
and and he had been his, his part of his insp- his own inspiration and his own hero growing up in Spain, <clears throat> wanting to become a golfer. And uh, they they perfectly dovetailed. You had Seve's exuberance and buccaneering and wildness and uh, determination, and then you had you had uh, Ollie's um, Ollie's quieter, uh, still uh, charismatic but quieter, uh, more studied um, approach to life and the game. They complemented each other absolutely perfectly, and um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure uh, Ollie managed to persuade Seve not to try some of his more outrageous recovery shots, but he did manage to persuade him not to try one or two of them, which was really helpful at the time. They were, they were a one. They, they, they just, they totally believed. Uh, I mean, not as a just as a journalistic cliche. They totally believed on any given day, paired together. No one in the world could beat them, and that's a hell of a thing to take onto a golf course or any kind of sporting arena. Yeah, by far yeah. the best uh, duo in Ryder Cup history, and and we saw even last month at the Masters how emotional Ollie was getting on Seve's birthday after making the cut. Yes, yes, yes. They 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 were the they were blood brothers. They were blood brothers, and funny enough, um, Seve envied Ollie. Which not many people realise, uh, and and the reason the NBN because we were, he and I were talking one day. I mean, we weren't talking about Jose Maria Olavo, but he, he talked. And then I was saying, with you, you know, just some point, it wasn't an interview. We we're just chatting. I said, well, you know, by the way, do, do, do you have any any regrets? This wasn't late in his career, but is it, you know, is there anything you've missed out on that, that you think? I mean, apart from winning more majors at that time, and so he said, I oh, know. I tell you, he said, I. I I would like to have been like uh, Jose and, uh, and, and Jose Maria, and, and I said, "Why? What way?" Uh, and and he said, "Well, he said Jose Maria had an amateur golf career, and he was Spanish amateur champion, and he some like Italian amateur champion, and something else amateur champion. You know, Ollie was amateur champion of several countries. I haven't got them in front of me at the moment. Look them up. But um, and and Sebi would love to have done that, but instead of which, you know, Sebi that when he just turned 17 was pitched into being a professional golfer and and and, and trying to earn money so Sevi never had Sevi never knew what it was like to be an amateur golfer he knew what it was like to steal onto the uh, the golf course in in uh, what's it in Spain and and, and 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 play golf and hit shots but he didn't know what it was like to be an amateur golfer and he and he would have liked to have done that because he would like to have won those amateur open titles because he loved winning open tankers. If you look, I mean, in the piece of, that's in the current edition of Golf Monthly, the piece I've done about Seve, I, I, I mean, I list them, I'm not going to go through them now, but um, he won something like a dozen open titles, and that was quite deliberate. That's apart from the open, and that was a very deliberate thing on his part, because as he told me, he wanted to win as many open titles as he could. The other, the commercial titles, you know, the Mickey Mouse rubber duck, Whatever it was, may have had a bigger prize fund or whatever. Seve loved the open title. They had history, they had tradition, they had a list of people of usually you know within the game important people who had won them. And he said that winning an open title, you go into history and you join, you become a member of a band of brothers. And he he deliberately targeted the Dutch Open, the the Spanish Open, obviously the Portuguese Open, the German Open, the, the Italian Open, the French Open. The, whatever 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 and obviously the open and so 
uh, he regretted not being able to knock off a few of those open amateur titles as an amateur because he never was one. Yeah, for those who don't remember, Olafarbo won the amateur championship in '84 at Formby uh, at the age of 18, beating Monty in the final. So yeah, an incredible amateur career. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah. I went to that. I went to that final, which was at uh, wasn't it at Hoylake? Was it Hoylake or uh, Formby? No, not Hoylake. It was at the other one down the road, Formby. Yeah, that's right, Formby. I went to that and I arrived a little late. They, they teed off. I just went for the, their afternoon round. and I can't remember what the state of the game was at the time. It was very close. I know that. And Monty may have been one hole ahead or something. And they were playing at the second or third hole when I caught up with them in, on that afternoon at Formby. And uh, uh, um, as I arrived, they were approaching their tee shots. And Monty typically was in the middle of the fairway. And uh, Jose Maria was in the left hand rough with a line of a couple of trees between, because they have it for me, um, between him and the hole. And, and the hole was, I think, 170 yards, 180 yards away, something like that. And I thought, race. And that was a wind against him. And, he was, and I thought, well, well you know, he'd probably go down another hole here. And I saw him talking to his caddy in Spanish, mother, and then he took out a, a, turned out to be a three yard and gripped right, gripped down the shaft and hit this low cutting thing that, started up went sort of 20 yards left of the trees under the wind and then cut back and finished up 10 feet from the flag and he holds a putt i thought hmm i think we yeah. might win <laughs> and he did uh, yeah what you were saying earlier about the opens uh, i guess Seve always wanted to win the us open then which he uh, was never fortunate to be able to do no, no, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't acquit himself. I, I haven't got his record in front of me, but he didn't. I don't particularly remember him ever being seriously in contention on the final day in the US Open. Maybe he was. If he, if he was, I've forgotten it. But I went a lot of them. Funny enough, with the one that he was in, I can't remember what year it was, but he was in high good form. And um, on the first day, he turned up late in the team and got disqualified. So he's, he's, he found various different ways of not winning the US Open. That was probably his worst. We're not sure what happened. It's uh, clouded in some mystery, oh. is all I'll say. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was third at the Olympic Club in 87. Oh, there you go. Um, so, yeah, anyway, back to the Ryder Cup. Were you at Valderrama in 97 when Fasebi was captain? Um, I was, yeah. Was that the first time the Ryder Cup was in continental Europe? Uh, I think, yes. Yes, yes, it was. It was. It was, yeah. Because where else has it been in continental Europe? I mean, it was in France last year. Oh, a couple of years ago. Yeah, it must have been so. an amazing yeah. week and a, a very different feel about it. Well, it was. It was. I knew Valderrama well. We'd been there lots of times for tournaments and also just for personal breaks and things in that area. And the, um, I mean, Sebi, Sebi was off his head that week. I don't mean that in a bad way, but he was, he went, he, he went from his ultra passionate into another realm, higher up that emotional sphere that none of us knew existed. And uh, I mean, he may have slept for two hours during the entire bloody week, but I mean, that, that was, that, that was, about, I mean, the players, who was it said to me, probably Monty, I think, maybe Monty, maybe one of the other. Anyway, one of the players said to me on, he said, tell me something. He said, how many Sebis are there here? He said, because everywhere I go, another one appears. And he did, he did, he was, he said, and he, he, he got in their faces. He looked at what, 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 what club you take here? And he said, well, I'm thinking, what do you ask me? I've got a five, you know, take a four hour and hit a little load, do this, do that. 
It's the old Alan de Clear off. <laughs> and he was ringing, he was ringing, um, what's his face? Um, the engineer, what the mechanic, rather. What's it? What's his name? Jimmy Miguel Angel Jimenez. That's that's the very girl. Um, Miguel Angel Jimenez, who was his, who was his vice captain, one of his vice captains. The, the one that, his phone was regularly going at three, half past three in the morning. Sebi <laughs> ringing from his bedroom to Miguel's bedroom to say, Do you think we have the right partnership here? We, 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 we put Faldo with Westwood. Is this, you know? <laughs> say, for God's sake, all I want to do is have some sleep. Go to sleep. It's a game of golf. You know, he was um, almost quite literally beside himself. Um, at least he, he appeared to have cracked the ability to appear simultaneously in two different places at once. And poor old Tom Kite is a very nice, sort of rather quiet, a quiet American, um, smaller bloke with big spectacles and a rather puzzled look in his face most of the time. Had no chance. Had no chance. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> just, you know, you just look at, put the two of them side by side, you know, Sebi frotting at the mouth and, and Tom looking bemused and rather puzzled what was going on quite where he was. And you thought, there's only one winner here. And so it turned out. After a lot of rain and delay and drama. Yeah, just looking at it, it was a very close match, 13 and a half to 14 and a half. It was, it was a great game, yeah. It, it, yeah. yeah, it was a great, it, it was terrific, which is the way I like them. I, I, I mean, it's nice now that you see the record wins by Europe or, or indeed America, you know, winning by five points or more, that sort of thing. And you think, well, you know, there's a, if Europe do it, there's a small frizz on them that'll show them. But actually, you prefer most of us, I think, who enjoy sport, enjoy close sporting contests. Yeah, I bet Sevi was pretty nervous coming down the stretch there. He was. He was frothing from the ears as well as the mouth. <laughs> he was. He was. At one point, he went. He went past me, and I gave him a thumbs up. And he was looking straight. He was only about six feet away when he went past on his buggy. I swear to God, he looked straight at me. I swear he did no idea who it was. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't react at all. <laughs> he was away with the fairies. <laughs> But gloriously so. Yeah. Gloriously so. Yeah, so just wrapping up, Bill, can you sort of just describe um, his legacy, I guess, and, and what he's meant to you throughout your, your career as a golf writer? Um, what is, well, the two things he's meant to me in my career as a golf writer. One is he, he either deliberately or accidentally provided an awful lot of very good copy for people to read. He um, brought a lot of other people who weren't interested in golf into being interested in the game, or at least being interested in him. I mean, for every player or every man or, or woman, boy or girl, who took up golf because they were inspired by Seve Ballesteros, there was another man, woman, boy or girl who became interested in the game in terms of watching it or reading about it because of Seve Ballesteros. They didn't necessarily take it up, didn't have the time, didn't have the whatever, but they became interested in the game. He took it, he took it on this side of the Atlantic from being a game that was played by people who a lot of people thought couldn't play other proper games and turned it into an exciting and sexy sport um, for people who were dismissing it or at least not paying proper attention to it. And that was, that was very, very important. That's hugely important. Secondly, as we start, when, as we said at the start, the way that he inspired that cohort of other hugely talented players, Nick Faldo, Sandy Lau, Bernard Langer, Ian Lewis, and others, 
but those players principally to do what they did and therefore under Ken Schofield's uh, stewardship to take the European tour, not just up one level, up a dozen levels, up a dozen levels. And it's rather sad to see where the European tour is sliding now because their best players are over in America. And Seve and his pals, if I call them that, they didn't go to, they, yes, they played in America, but they never left the European tour. Nick Faldo did very late in his playing career, but basically through the 80s, which is when the European tour and into the early 90s, which is when the European tour grew so spectacularly. It was on the backs of their endeavours, their personalities, and the leader was Severiano Ballesteros. Um, on a personal level, I loved his flair, loved his talent. Um, I loved his personality. I loved, I loved loving him. I loved arguing with him. I loved, uh, and he loved me back, and as he did with others. He was, uh, he was a passionate man. Um, he was, he was an inspiration to so many. He was an irritation to quite a few. Um, he was a rascal. Um, he was, a, he was, could be a rascal. He was a maverick. He was his own man. And he never thought anything other than he was terrific. And you know what? He was right. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Uh, I really enjoyed that, Bill. Thanks. So yeah, Bill, you've written something in the current issue of Golf Monthly, which is the June issue out now, I believe. And then we've also got a really great piece with David Cannon, who's just indeed, yeah, and and Dan Davis, and 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 so on, and great photographs. And uh, the nicest thing about the piece that I've written, uh, for me anyway, about about Sevi is not what I've written, but one of the photographs, the main photograph, which is a stunning picture of Sevi, which I think was taken in 1983. Pretty sure it was 1983, 84. Um, where he's wearing a white dinner jacket, bow tie, red carnation, or rose in his lapel, and he's got a golf club over his hand, and he looks, I mean, just, he's a film star. And uh, it's quite a nice little story behind that, because um, I, was, I was on the Daily Star at that time, which, which in those days was a decent tabloid newspaper, not what it is now. But anyway, um, the, our editor, the great Lloyd Turner, said to me, um, we'd like to get a nice picture. Photograph. They, they used to do a, a sort of pin-up bloke once a week, full page, of Seve Ballesteros. What do you think? You tell him, you know him, tell him we'll pay him a £1,000 in cash, either in sterling, pesetas, whatever currency he wants. So I said, okay. So I thought about this. I had to get him to do this. And I thought, well, I've tried to appeal to his ego, because we've all got it, haven't we, you know, one way or another. And... Uh, so I went to him, I said, look, Sevi, um, my editor would like us to do a picture. We do this picture, you know, explain the thing. And he's looking at me, yeah, yeah. And I said, and he's willing to pay, happy to pay you a thousand pounds in pesetas, in sterling, dollars, whatever you want. And so he said, no. So I said, well, look, here's the idea. Um, I think you're the James Bond of golf. So, and he liked to dress you like James Bond. She had a white dinner jacket, red carnation, bow tie, and maybe put a, a golf club of some kind over your shoulder, like it's a, you know, walking, silver top walking cane. And he said, mm-hmm. you think I'm James Bond? I said, I think you could be James Bond. Yeah, I do. Mm. What do you pay? I said, I, we would pay you a thousand pounds in whatever domination you want. He said, no. 
I said, no, you don't. He said, no, I don't want the money. I do the picture. I don't want the money. And he didn't take the, he didn't take the money. And they were playing the PGA Championship down at uh, Prince's. I think it was Prince's in Kent. And a brilliant photographer, portrait photographer called Mark Bertolon. Mark Bertolon was engaged to do the picture. And so Mark scouted out and I said, well, try the, um, uh, the hotel, uh, the Bell Hotel in Deal, which is the main hotel in Deal, and see if we can set up a room there. They didn't have a room because they were all booked out that week. But they said we could use a corner of the, re- of the reception area, of the main, when you walk in the hotel, just that area. So Mark set up there with his various light things and what have you, just in a corner. And I, meanwhile, had got Sebi's measurements. I'd taken a tape measure some weeks before, measured his chest and so on. So Mark had got the white jacket, the carnation, the white shirt, the bow tie, and a golf club. And I told Sebi, right, we're going to do this. We'll do it on Thursday. Is that okay? He said, yeah, he was playing in the morning, morning round. And uh, I arranged to see him immediately after he finished that round. And he did. Uh, he came out the the scorer's tent, whatever, looked at me, and there was me. He said, you ready? I said, yeah, let's go. Uh, I had my Ford Cortina around the corner. He jumped in the Cortina, and off we sped to the Bell Hotel. It was about 10 minutes away. We got there. Mark was waiting, went in. Mark put the lights on. Sevy went behind a screen that Mark had brought with him and changed out of his, just the top, his shirt, and what have you. didn't bother about the bottom. It was from the waist-up shop. And they put on the white jacket. And so he came in front. Mark took half a dozen snaps. It's the best photograph ever taken of Savvy Ballesteros as a civilian. And it's in the current edition of Gothmuth. We managed to track Mark down and he happily supplied that picture. And if you ever see a better one of Savvy, tell me about it because I don't know one. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic, Bill. That's an amazing story. Right, so yeah, a pleasure to speak to you, Bill. Listeners, if you've enjoyed, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, if that's where you listen. If not, just uh, subscribe on your YouTube channel. We'll be back next week with Tom, who's uh, rightfully having a week off this week. And um, yeah, we'll we'll round up all the latest from the golf world. So uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure, Bill. Always great chatting to you. Well, thanks. Hope I wasn't uh, as ever too dumb. (laughs) And uh, yeah, good luck with the recovery. I, I can't wait to see you back on the golf course soon. Yeah, hopefully, my aim is to get there before Tiger. (laughs) All right.